0: Please pray with me, Heavenly Father. We thank you that your word always remains true. It doesn't matter what time period we're living in. It doesn't matter what restrictions we're under. It doesn't mean that it doesn't matter the scary things going on. Your word remains true. Your promises remain true, and your teaching remains true. So, Lord, I pray that your Spirit would go forth open our ears and open our hearts to what you have for us this morning, that your seeds of truth may be buried deep within us and bear eternal fruit. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As divided as America looks right now, and it looks very divided, doesn't it? There is is an even more intense feud in American history, and that's the famous one behind... uh, between the Hatfields and the McCoys. Anybody hear those? How would you like this to be your picture for your Christmas card this year? Merry Christmas. Love the Davises. Sorry. I especially like this kid over here holding the pistol. Who gave him that? Okay. These two families lived along the Sandy River which was the border between Kentucky and West Virginia, and most of the intense feuding occurred just after the Civil War ended in the second half of the 1800s. After the murder of one of the McCoys in 1865 by a local militia group that counted several Hatfields among its members, relations between the two families got worse and worse and worse over the next decade until they blew up over a seemingly insignificant event. In 1878, the patriarch of the McCoy family accused a member of the Hatfields of stealing one of his pigs. That was it. That was the entire accusation. He stole one of his pigs. That accusation exploded into a whole court case. And when the Hatfields were acquitted of the crime, the McCoys were furious. Most historians count that event as the official starting point of this famous feud, which which included several murders and revenge events. Almost 10 years after that, the American media started reporting on this feud, throwing it into national spotlight and fame. There was one more major attack by the Hatfields on the McCoys, dubbed the New Year's Massacre in 1888, that when several Hatfields were arrested, eventually made its way all the way to the US Supreme Court over a year later. After that decision, both families tried to fade into obscurity. But the legend of that feud was already cemented into American history. And most of us here have heard of that feud, the Hatfields versus the McCoys. In fact, the popular game show, Family feud is purportedly based off of this famous family feud. There you go. You learned something today. If you learn nothing else out of my sermon, you can take that home with you. Another probably lesser-known feud is what sets the stage for the well-known parable today that Jesus gives. What does the setting for the parable, as well as the parable itself, Teach us about God's love for us and how we should give that love to others. Now before we get into the immediate setting and the parable itself, I want to set the stage for Jesus' point in it. The Jewish people had specifically descended from Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. Jacob's 12 sons re- relocated from Canaan, the land that God had promised to Abraham, to the suburbs of Egypt. There they grew quite comfortable, even though it was not where God wanted them to be. It was not the promised land. So God allowed for a tragic experience to befall his people, hundreds of years of slavery under the Egyptians. We all know that well-known, the, the, the well-known aspects of God freeing them from that through the 10 plagues, and Passover, and the parting of the Red Sea. The descendants of Jacob, renamed Israel, were now known as the Israelites and they eventually took Canaan or the promised land for themselves before that they were given the Jewish law by God the representation of the covenant God made with them known as the old covenant we talked about that a couple of weeks ago at Mount Sinai that we have here in this picture this covenant was conditional in that if the nation of Israel did not love God by obeying his commandments, they would lose that promised land. That was the condition. If you don't love me by obeying my commandments, you're gonna end up losing this land. Fast forward hundreds of years, past Israel demanding a human king instead of seeing God as their king, past King Saul, King David, and King Solomon, and past the kingdom of Israel being divided, into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. This was one kingdom of Israel under Saul, David, and Solomon and then split sometime after Solomon becoming the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. You can see here that the capital city of Judah is Jerusalem. You see there by that star. That's where the true temple was. And the capital city of Israel is this city called Samaria. Keep that name in mind. That's going to be extremely important to the rest of what we're going to be talking about. The capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel is Samaria. Because of the grievous sins of both kingdoms of Israel and Judah, God counted his covenant he made with them hundreds of years before broken. Both kingdoms would now lose their land in God's discipline of his people to spiritually bring them back to him. Put very simply, the pagan people group, known as the Assyrians, attacked Israel, deposed their king, and took over their land. The the Assyrian conquest strategy of keeping their conquered peoples from rising up against them was to cart away most of them and bring them back to Assyria, and then forcibly intermarry their own people with the rest of who was left from the conquered people. This time was no different. The Assyrians carted away most of Israel's inhabitants and then forcibly made the remaining people in Israel get married to Assyrians. The kids born from these marriages were not full-blooded racial Jewish people. The land around the city of Samaria, then became known as the region of Samaria, inhabited by these racially half-Jewish people known as Samaritans. Okay. You with me so far? All right. The southern kingdom of Judah also lost their land, but it was by way of the Babylonians. The Babylonians were a little bit different. They didn't forcibly intermarry their people with with the Jewish people in Judah. What they did was they parted away most of the Jewish population in Judah to forcibly go live in Babylon in exile. Hundreds of years passed for those Jewish people living in Babylon, and the government changed hands from Babylon to the Medes to the Persians. It's in that time period that God used Esther, you've heard of her, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We've all heard of them, right? It's during that period that God uses all of them in Babylon. Eventually, the Persian king Cyrus issues a decree that allows uh, the, the Jewish people to return to Judah and its capital city of Jerusalem. By and large, the Jewish people in Babylon and then Persia kept their bloodline pretty Jewish, and then they started to return to the land of Judah. A little while after that, the Greeks... And then the Romans conquered this area and drew up their own governing entities in this area. And so by the time Jesus walked the earth, you have the region of Samaria inhabited by half-Jewish Samaritans. And you have the sandwiched in between Judea, which is made up of mostly full-blooded Jewish people. You got uh, Jerusalem down here and Galilee up here. These are all names we've heard of in the New Testament as we read through that. The full-blooded Jewish people centered around Jerusalem, and they hated the half-Jewish Samaritans. Hated them. And the feeling was mutual. It was another case of human racial hate and discrimination that humanity has known all too well and continues to deal with, unfortunately. Unfortunately. In this case, the Jewish people hated Samaria and the Samaritans so much that when they needed to travel to Galilee from Judea, they would would go out of their way. They wouldn't go through Samaria. They would go out of their way by crossing over the Jordan River and going up that way or taking a boat up through this way. They would purposely refuse to go through the land of Samaria because they hated the Samaritans that much. Again, the feeling was mutual. There was just as much racial discrimination and hatred from the Samaritans towards the Jewish people. Noted by one biblical scholar, when the Jewish people returned to Judah, the Samaritans violently opposed them. And a couple hundred years later, allied themselves with pagan persecution of the Jewish people. There was just really bad blood between the Jewish people and the Samaritans and was the very definition of a really bad feud. Really bad feud. I went through all of this to show the background and the deep-seated feelings and discrimination that permeated both the Jewish people and the Samaritans towards each other at the time of Jesus. The parable that Jesus gives them in light of all of this, is going to truly shock, probably infuriate, and shame the ones listening to it about God's love and mercy that does not operate at all in connection with human discrimination. I think we can all declare resounding, thank God to that truth, right? So with all that in mind, let's turn to our passage. Along the way in Jesus's ministry, an expert in the Jewish law tried to do what so many had already tried to do, and that was to trip Jesus up and therefore call his credibility into question. We have experts in US law today, those who know the Constitution so well, they can answer any question posed to them about different legal situations. This guy was kind of the equivalent of that not only for the original law God gave to Israel through Moses, but also for all the additional laws that the Pharisees had tacked onto it. So if there was going to be anyone who knew the Jewish law well enough to trip Jesus up, it was going to be one of these guys. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to Luke chapter 10. We're going to be focusing on verses 25 through 37 this morning. So this guy comes up to Jesus and says in verse 25, and a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This guy does not genuinely want to know how he can get eternal life. How do we know that? Well, Luke tells us outright. A lawyer stood up and put him to the test. He was trying to trip Jesus up. This wasn't a genuine question. He didn't authentically really want to know how to inherit eternal life. Luke tells us explicitly that this guy, similar to Simon the Pharisee that we talked about last week, was not asking a genuine question. He didn't really want to know how to inherit eternal life because he thought he already had it figured out. He thought he already had the answer to that. What he really wanted to do was publicly show that Jesus didn't know the answer to that question. This guy's playing with fire now, isn't he? See, this lawyer is trying to set Jesus up. As one biblical scholar noted out, the question he just asked was a common theological question that these lawyers and rabbis and Pharisees would often pose. Jesus would not fall for it or be put on the defense. So he quickly turns the conversation around and puts this lawyer on the defense. So Jesus replies with another question, verse 26. And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? Jesus is basically saying, well, what do you think? He turns it completely around against this lawyer. Jesus brilliantly turns the tide of the conversation and forces the lawyer to now be on the defense. Anyone who watches or has knowledge of football or really any team sport knows that the saying, the best offense is a good defense but the opposite is equally true. If your offense can start putting up a lot of points early in the game, the other team is all of a sudden forced to make big plays to try to catch up, often in desperation, thus creating easy opportunities for the winning team's defense to pick them off, get sacks, or force the other offense to make dumb decisions. And that's what Jesus does here. He all of a sudden puts The lawyer on the defense. The lawyer is forced to give his interpretation of the law. Now, do you see that? He was trying to force Jesus to give his interpretation of the law. Now he's forced to give his interpretation of the law. So the lawyer responds with this in verse 27. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. This is the safe answer. This is the safe answer. Anyone who had any Jewish background in the Jewish scriptures or law would have answered this way. In fact, in Deuteronomy 6.5, when God tells Moses what to relay to Israel, an introduction to the covenant he was making with them, that conditional covenant we already talked about, that's the first part of this lawyer's quote. Right there, Deuteronomy 6.5. The second part, having to do with loving your neighbor comes from Leviticus 19.18 these two verses combined summed up the entirety of the Jewish law and in many Jewish people's minds especially the lawyers and the Pharisees if you tried your best to obey the entirety of the law that's how you received eternal life that was it according to one biblical scholar keep that in mind You've got to both follow love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself Keep, in order to inherit eternal life. Keep that in mind. According to one biblical scholar, if this guy was smart, he would have stopped there, given his answer and taken a step back. And if he was actually genuine in his questioning, he should have asked something along the lines of, well, how do I do that then? Jesus would have then pointed out his grievous mistake that he was putting his faith in how well he could obey the law instead of the original basis, which we talked about a few weeks ago, that it was simply loving and being faithful to God. That love and faith in God then drove you to obey his commands, not the other way around. But again, this lawyer is only out to try to trip Jesus up. So instead of either one of these things, he pushes it further. He pushes it further. He's trying to poke at Jesus now. Verse 29. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? This guy wanted to keep going. He wanted to keep poking. He, d- he hadn't achieved his goal yet, so he kept trying to work Jesus by asking a loaded question Who is my neighbor? The lawyer was hoping that Jesus would reply. What what Leviticus 19.18 implies, your fellow full-blooded and law-abiding Jewish brother. That's what he was hoping Jesus would reply with. Your fellow Jewish and law-abiding Jewish brother. If Jesus had answered that way, which would have been customary, and what anyone would have expected, guess what? That lawyer would have run all over Jesus throwing all the many examples the Jewish law offered in, J- in Jesus' face. Well, What about the Gentile that converts to Judaism? What about the Jewish eunuchs? What about a Jewish woman? And the million-dollar question, what about those awful, horrible, half-Jewish Samaritans? See, Jesus knows what's going through this lawyer's mind, and he knows about all the possibilities this lawyer could have thrown in his face. So Jesus answers in a parable with a very simple but very powerful point. Verse 30. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now you can see here on this map that both Jerusalem and Jericho lie well within the region of Judea here. Jerusalem was higher in elevation than Jericho, so that's why you have the directional term down here instead of north, which would have been up. As anyone listening to Jesus would have already known, travel by roads, especially the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, was notoriously dangerous notoriously. You could be waylaid by weather, and more dangerously, you could be attacked by thieves that waited around every corner. Like I said, in fact, the main road from Jerusalem to Jericho was well known in that uh, period and in that place to be extremely dangerous, as its steep, winding ways provided ample hiding places for thieves. It was so commonplace that Jesus' listeners wouldn't have been at all surprised by this turn of events in this traveler's life. And they might have even been thinking to themselves, well, this guy was just asking for it. By going from Jerusalem to Jericho down this road in the first place. Everybody knows that's what happens to you if you go from Jerusalem to Jericho on that road. This guy was asking for It just so happened that a priest from the temple in Jerusalem was going to Jericho... For his own reasons. Verse 31. And by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. This guy served in the temple and resided in Jerusalem during his time of service. As he made the ser- sacrifices and served God, he was reminded of who God was, including his love and mercy towards his people with every bit of symbolism in that temple. The very basis of the aspects of the temple from the original tabernacle came out of the direct connection of God intervening and mercifully saving his people from slavery in Egypt. If his heart was in the right place, this priest would have constantly been reminded of these characteristics and actions of God. But as one biblical scholar pointed out, this particular priest was too focused on the law itself, and not the one who gave the law. It was unlawful for anyone, particularly a priest serving in the house of God, to touch a corpse. That would make him ceremonially unclean and unable to perform his duties in the temple. And at first glance, as God's word says, that's what this guy looked like. He was half dead. He looked like a corpse. But here's the thing. Where was the pri- what was this priest currently doing as he's passing by this guy that looked dead? Traveling away from where? Traveling away from Jerusalem. At one point in Israel's history, King David divided up the times of priestly service with a rotational schedule of priests. Like we see with Zachariah, John the Baptist's dad. The priests temporarily lived in Jerusalem for the period of their service. Once their period of service was over, they could go back home. So what was this priest doing, walking away from Jerusalem? He was going home. His time of priestly service was over. He didn't have to worry about becoming spiritually unclean because he had plenty of time to do what was necessary to restore that status. So this priest literally had no excuse. He couldn't even use the law because he could do, even if he touched and this, the, the guy to make sure he was okay. And the guy actually was dead. He had plenty of time to get himself back to the clean status he needed to be to serve, in the te- to serve in the temple again. If we saw what appeared to be a dead person on the side of the road, the very least we would do would be to do what? Call 911, right? That would be the very least thing we would do. We'd also probably see if the person was actually dead or could be helped. But this priest, even without excuse, didn't even have that common human decency. He still did absolutely nothing. In fact, he crossed to the other side of the street. Talk about not wanting to have anything to do with that guy. In fact, he probably hurried on, thinking, that guy got killed by thieves. I don't want to end up in the same spot by stopping to help him. A priest was a direct descendant of Moses' brother Aaron. He could trace his bloodline to the very first priests commissioned by God to serve in his tabernacle. This guy was religious royalty by blood. Religious royalty looked up to by everyone else who wasn't a fellow priest. He was seen as the cream of the crop when it came to religion. But Jesus took something as basic as helping a fellow Israelite and shamed that religious royalty with it. With as much service as this guy had performed in the the temple, when it really mattered, he didn't serve God at all. With as much as he did outwardly in the temple, when it truly mattered, he had no inward service. And remember what I said that the Jewish people thought that if you obeyed, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, that's how you receive eternal life? What did this priest, the cream of the crop, when it came to religion, not even do? Love his neighbor as himself. This guy was a fellow Israelite. He had no excuse. Next came along Levite, verse 32. Verse 32. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Levites were similar to priests in that they took care of the physical aspects of the temple. The priests did the work in the temple, and the Levites took care of the temple itself, sort of like the temple's custodians, if you were to think of it that way. They were the tribe of Israel that both Moses and Aaron came from, And they were the tribe commissioned by God to serve in the tabernacle. In fact, the tribe of Levi, if you go back into the Old Testament, did not receive any allotment of land when Israel conquered the promised land. They were to be provided for by the rest of Israel in payment for their devoted service to God in the tabernacle. That's how they were provided for. As one biblical scholar noted, the Levites, though similar to the priests, didn't even have the same restrictions put on them as the priests did. So the Levite had even less of an excuse than the priest, who still had none when it came to touching a corpse. Still, similar to the priest, even though he outwardly served in the temple, when it truly mattered, he could not have cared less about inwardly serving God by serving his fellow man. He also cared so little that he crossed to the other side of the street, distancing himself as much as humanly possible from the traveler both of these guys were way up in people's minds when it came to religious people if there was going to be anyone who received eternal life from God it certainly would have been these guys but here Jesus is wildly calling even that into question even that lawyer had said that in order to get eternal life You needed to love your neighbor, especially your Jewish brother. What had neither one of these guys done at all? Exactly that. If it was questionable that these two guys, a priest and a Levite, would receive eternal life, who had any hope of getting it? This took everything the Jewish people knew and were taught and turned it completely upside down. (laughs) But Jesus isn't done yet, as if that was enough. If you had not heard this story yet, you'd think you knew where Jesus was going with this. You you might think, all right, I see what he's getting at. He's tearing down the false righteousness of the religious elite and put the spotlight on the average Jewish Joe and how they can receive eternal life. What's coming next is your average blue-collar, work-a-day Jewish guy who goes and helps this half-dead guy. That's what you're expecting. But Jesus even takes it one step further and truly shocks and infuriates all of his listeners. Verses 33 and 34. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. What?! A Samaritan? Are you kidding me? That's why I went through all of that establishing of this deep-seated and ingrained hatred and discrimination by the Jewish people in Judea towards the Samaritans. This was scandalous. This was foolish. This was certainly not politically correct. And this could have even been seen as blasphemous. You can imagine Jesus' audience as he introduced the Samaritan and continued on with what the Samaritan did, thinking and even vocalizing over Jesus, no, nuh-uh, no way. You better stop now if you know what's good for you. But when has Jesus ever stopped? Jesus keeps going. This Samaritan, knowing he was deep into Jewish territory and received much less of a response if that could even exist, if the same thing happened to him, had compassion towards this man that in the Samaritan's mind probably hated him, and he hated him. And at the same time, that Samaritan had the same ingrained hatred towards the Jewish people. And yet, not only did he stop in the first place and see if this guy was actually dead or not, but then he helped him. The oil and wine the Samaritan used had medicinal qualities. The alcoholic content of the wine disinfected the traveler's wounds, and the oil helped the skin heal. Where'd this guy get the bandages he used to bind up the traveler's wounds? Ever thought about that? I don't think people normally carried that with them, especially not in the quantity that this traveler would have needed. One possibility is that the Samaritan used strips of his own clothing to bandage up this guy's wounds. So not only does this Samaritan help this traveler by cleaning and bandaging up his wounds, but he takes it one step further, even beyond that. He puts the traveler on the donkey he'd been riding and takes him to an inn to give him the opportunity to rest and let his body heal. And not only that... But then he does this, verse 35. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. (laughs) Now he's financially helping this guy. We talked last week about how much a denarius was worth, a coin in payment for a full 12-hour day's worth of work. Now here, in this context, it doesn't matter how much that's worth in US dollars today for our understanding of this parable. What does matter, though, is that in this time of poverty, you didn't just give away denarii. That was worth full two full days of work. You weren't just handing them out to everybody. That was two full days of hard, back-breaking work. But instead of letting the traveler foot the bill and just be grateful his life was saved, he goes beyond that and pays his room rent and any other food and health expenses. If it was even more expensive for this guy to heal up, the Samaritan committed to paying the balance. Wow. I think that puts all of us here to shame, doesn't it? And after all of that, Jesus then turns to the smug lawyer and says in verse 36, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? The answer is obvious, albeit shameful. It's not the religious elite, those who have any sort of chance of receiving eternal life, who actually loved their neighbor, and therefore would receive eternal life. It was the Samaritan, who no God-fearing Jewish person would dare claim any right to eternal life, who would get it. That shakes everything up. And so the lawyer was left with no other response than to say, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. You can imagine the lawyer having his head lowered and grudgingly saying, you know what? I'm not even going to mention the Samaritan by name. But since my back's against the wall, the only answer I can give in direct connection with what I've already told Jesus is the one who actually showed mercy and love towards his neighbor. That's all I can say. I'm not even going to say the Samaritan, just the one who showed mercy. Jesus' response is poignant. Go and do that then. If you want any hope of receiving eternal life, you must love God first and foremost, including his Messiah. And therefore, love your neighbor. And here's the thing. No matter who it is. No matter who it is. No matter who it is? Are you serious, Jesus? No matter who it is? Here's the truth. God certainly shows no favorites when he calls anyone to salvation found in Jesus does he not at all not at all so must our love for God and his Messiah be displayed through our love towards the same people he died for no matter who it is this is especially relevant to what is going on in our nation right now I'm going to step on some toes If you're a staunch Republican, this means showing love towards a staunch Democrat. If you're a staunch Democrat, this means showing love towards a staunch Republican. This means showing love towards anyone you might politically or morally disagree with. You still show love to them. On another note, this obviously means showing love towards races, ethnicities, and cultures that are different from yours. This even means showing love towards anyone who holds to to a different religion or worships different deities. You still show love to them. As much as any human politician preaches unity and healing in our country, it must first start with Jesus. It must first start with loving Jesus and that love being poured out towards each other. Here's what God's word teaches us. God first loved us. So we must love him and must love the people he died for. And, in keeping with Jesus' shock factor of this parable, you know what this also means? This also means showing love towards those who identify with the LGBTQ plus community. Jesus stood for the truth when he dined with people he knew were breaking God's law. But what also can't be lost on us is that he was dining with them. He still loved them. He still associated with them. He still had relationships with them. He didn't try to stay as far away from them as humanly possible like the Pharisees were famous for. The ones who crossed to the other side of the street were who? The priest who didn't love God and love his neighbor, and the Levite who didn't love God and love his neighbor. Jesus didn't try to stay as far. It it is quiet as it could possibly be in here right now. Jesus did not try to stay as far away from them as humanly possible like the Pharisees were famous for. Look for open doors and opportunities and follow how God leads you. In all these various ways, how are we showing Jesus' love for everyone, regardless of who they are? Regardless, it doesn't matter who they are. Like the Samaritan, God reached out to every one of us with his love. It didn't matter who we were. So, who are we to show or withhold love from our human? fellow human beings. If Jesus reached out to all kinds of people who were very different from him with his love and his truth, we must also be known as people who do the same. In Antioch, the believers in Jesus were first known as Christians. And it, the, this term was used in a derogatory way to to call out believers in Jesus, but the, the first term to describe believers in Jesus in Antioch was the term Christian. Christian means little Christ. Who are we to be living like? Ourselves? What we are comfortable with? What we, what we think we, we want to get ourselves wrapped up in or not? Who are we supposed to be living like? Christ. We are supposed to be being little Christs. Look at the way he interacted with people. Did he show favoritism towards anybody? No. Did he purposely not associate with anybody because of who they were? No. He still stood for the truth. He still taught God's word. But he did so while associating with people of all different kinds of backgrounds. That's what we also should be known as a people for. The famous verse sums it all up. For God so loved a certain group of people, a few certain groups of people, no. Ones that we're comfortable with, no. The world that he gave his only son so that the people we're comfortable with, the people we think deserve to hear about God's word, everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life if we are so grateful that God reached out to us with his love and Jesus died for us, who are we to withhold that from anybody else? Jesus died for the world. He died for everyone, regardless of background and past, or race, or ethnicity, or political leaning, or religion, or lack of faith of any kind, or identity, or gender. Who's going to bring the message of repentance, Jesus' forgiveness and salvation, and eternal hope to them? Who's going to be the one to do it? If not us, who then? We are. We are the ones who will bring the message of Jesus' hope and forgiveness and our repentance and his salvation. We're the ones he's called to do it. Nobody else. Not some big spiritual evangelist guy. It's on all of us. When Jesus called his disciples to himself at the end of Matthew, what is known to us as the Great Commission, that famous passage in Scripture, he didn't just take two or three people. He spoke to all the disciples that were gathered in front of him. It wasn't just the twelve. It was everybody who followed after him at that point before he ascended into heaven and he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Bring people of every background, race, ethnicity, culture, language, anything. Bring them into the sheepfold. Go and bring them. We are the continuation of the church. We are the church. Are we the church? Are we living like the church? Are we going to go out into the world and bring the message of Jesus' hope and forgiveness and salvation to anyone and everyone, regardless of who they are? Let it be so. We're the ones he's called to do it. And so, brothers and sisters, we will. We will. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. This was one of those hard-hitting passages. This is one of those convicting passages. Lord, I pray that we are convicted. I pray that we feel something stirring up inside of us. I pray that we truly be honest with ourselves and say, am I really sharing God's gospel with everyone? with anyone regardless of who they are or am I choosing not to associate with certain types of people when you didn't do that you reached out and have and continue to reach out to all kinds of different people regardless of who they are to bring into your kingdom thank you thank you for doing that because if you didn't do that none of us would have any hope so Lord let us be convicted Let us walk out from this place a changed person, having a different perspective, bringing your word and your salvation, your hope to anyone you open the door to. Now, Lord, I pray that we would look, we would look, really look, for every opportunity you're giving to us to share your message of hope and salvation with them. Just as a Samaritan did to this traveler, and just like Jesus has done with all of us and I pray all these things in Jesus' name.